So today is our official start of Global Outreach Month. Uh, those of you that have been around Curtis Lake for a long time, you know every week or uh, every year we've had uh, a Global Outreach Week, oftentimes in the fall. This past fall, we, uh, we did kind of a Global Outreach Sunday. And this year, we're going to try doing an emphasis for the entire month of May on Global Outreach. So next week, we'll begin a new teaching series um, that will we'll start next Sunday and also, you know, kind of just be throughout the month spending some time looking at and finding ways for us to be encouraged by and hopefully refueled to be thinking about uh, the lost in our world. You see the stage has already been changed. We've got flags here representing uh, many of the countries that we already have partnerships with and that we support various ministries throughout. Uh, there's some lamps here behind me which help represent the theme for this month, which is Hope Rising. You can see the banner uh, over to my right. And so throughout the month, we'll see more and more lights kind of added to the display uh, as we grow in this series together. So I hope, uh, first of all, that you'll do your very best to try to come out every single week. Um, we have some great things planned uh, for our Sunday services and then also some things throughout the week. But we'd really like to encourage you to participate uh, as fully as you possibly can over the course of this next month. All right, but today, uh, because today is today, we are going to wrap up our series Things Jesus Never Said. How many of you have enjoyed this so far? Um, it's been good. Uh, as I had mentioned uh, several weeks ago when we started this, I had given a segment of our congregation about 16 or 17 different ideas for things that Jesus never said, and we let them kind of vote and essentially construct um, this message series. And the top four things we looked at and uh, are looking at, and uh, they were pretty overwhelmingly the most popular. Uh, today, the thing we're going to look at that Jesus never said is Jesus never said these words. You'll not find, as you read through the Gospels, these coming out of the mouth of Jesus, and those are the words, follow your Everybody say it together. Heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Things that Jesus never said, one of those things is certainly follow your heart. Um, we have used this expression, I'm sure all of us, we've had it said over us. And for the most part, we kind of like it, right? Because it sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds like the right advice. Follow your heart. Uh, whenever you find yourself caught between a couple of, you know, equally good choices or opportunities, you know, the well-meaning, well-intentioned friend will just say, well, you know, you got to follow your heart, right? Ultimately, you got to pull the trigger. You got to decide. You got to move forward in one way or the other. And so uh, after weighing all the options and listing the pros and cons and determining that they're largely similar in rank, follow your heart. It sounds right. And who, after all, doesn't want to live in a world where we get to do whatever we want, right? That's what we like most about the advice of following our heart is, oh, so I get to pursue a life where I'm largely moving in the direction that my heart is taking me. Well, that sounds good, right? Hello? I know you don't want to admit it. But let's be honest, that sounds good. It sounds right. It sounds like something that will work for me. Um, a number, 
of years ago, my grandfather was over our house. Uh, he was helping us in our house in Farmington with this basement project that we were doing. And it was lunchtime, and I decided we were going to get some sandwiches from the local pizza place there. And so I asked him, I said, hey, Grandpa, what do you want to eat? What do you want for a sandwich? And you can probably guess what he said. It doesn't matter, right? Because he's from the generation that I like to call eats whatever is in front of them, right? He's part of that generation. I said, Grandpa, they're going to make you a sandwich. Like they're making it for you. Like they're going to cut the bread and they're going to put on the condiments. They're going to, somebody's going to choose meat and vegetables to put on this thing. Why don't you tell me what your heart is craving, right? And he's like, it, was, it, would, it took everything I could to get a decision out of him. Now, I'm not like that. You present me with a sandwich, I have 17 different questions I have to ask you about that sandwich before I will take a bite out of that thing. But not him, right? He didn't care about the choices. But we live our lives largely uh, in the direction of our choices, where our heart takes us, where our heart yearns for. And another benefit of living under the precept of following your heart is that you get to ultimately be the arbiter uh, for what is good, and what is bad for what is right and wrong, right? You get to be the moral arbiter of your life. And again, who wouldn't like that? Who wouldn't like having the autonomy to say that this is something I want to do and therefore it is good for me. And then go on and do it without fear of somebody else judging or criticizing or otherwise trying to correct your behavior, right? So the idea of following our heart it sounds right. But how many of you would be honest and you'd say, hey, I have a story for how I once followed my heart and it didn't work out. Anybody got one of those or a few of those? That's the problem with following our hearts sometimes is that our hearts can be wrong. The Bible describes the heart as deceitful and desperately wicked, right? Our hearts actually sometimes bring us in a direction that we ultimately find out is not the best for us. It's what I wanted. It's what I thought I wanted, but it's not what I thought it was once I got there. And so there's some difficulty that I think we all can relate to when it comes to this challenge of following your heart. So what did Jesus say about this concept of following? What are we supposed to follow? How are we supposed to make decisions in our lives? What is supposed to be our standard for the direction or the trajectory that our lives are headed in? I want first to look at Matthew chapter 19 together. We're going to read uh, a number of verses there, and then I'll make some comments as we look at what Jesus asks for us to follow. Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. It's going to sound a little weird the way this thing starts out, but this is kind of the start of the story. All right. Then children, it says, children were brought to Jesus that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the gospel according to Matthew. I'm going to jump over to the gospel of Luke, who also records this story, uh, but says something that Matthew leaves out. Luke says, or records, that Jesus additionally to that says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Okay, now back to Matthew. And behold... Right? In the context of this conversation that Jesus is having with the people, behold, a man came up to him saying, Good teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? 
And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, many of you have heard this story a number of times, and there are certainly some different angles and perspectives that we can preach on when it comes to the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. But I want to ask you to do something at the outset here, and the first thing I want you to do is I want you to completely forget about money. I just want you to forget about it. Uh, Jesus says to the man uh, who we know to be wealthy, he says, go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. Certainly that command to follow Jesus is uh, what we're largely focusing on. But I don't want you to be distracted, at least for a little while, on this whole idea of money. How many of you are relieved? It's like, oh good, he's not going to preach about money. Well, don't worry, maybe I'll get there. I want you to worry about that right now, okay? I mean, let's be honest. None of us are actually willing to follow this prescription, right? None of us are willing to sell our house. Some of us aren't willing to sell our second house, right? Or our car or cars. We're not willing to sell all of our possessions and give the money to the poor and then pursue this pursuit of following Jesus. None of us are willing to do that. And so let's not interpret what Jesus is saying to the man as some kind of absolute command that we are supposed to adapt for our lives and follow through with, okay? None of us are going to do that. The lesson here that Jesus is teaching to this man and to the people that are listening actually begins with a statement that says, the kingdom of God is for children. That's where we started in our text this morning. Jesus said the kingdom of God is for children and that if anybody is going to inherit the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, then he or she must become like a child and receive it. Right? Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it that that is the first and foremost requirement of ultimately receiving or embracing or becoming a part of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is that we must receive it like a child. And here Jesus is pointing out that the kingdom of God, it is not won through power or prestige, right? Or privilege, right? Those things that we naturally associate with how we get our way, right? We get our way or we get the things that we want through the power that we can wield in this life through the prestige that we may have or the reputation that we may have among other people or perhaps some of the privileges that we've been the recipients of. Those are the opportunities that afford us to go after the things that our hearts want. But Jesus says the kingdom of God does not come this way. The kingdom of God must be received like as a child would receive it. And when Jesus says 
You will not attain. He is speaking of you will not acquire. You will not, you will not enjoy what it means to be a participant in the kingdom of heaven. Now, immediately we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? And you'll find that throughout the gospels, these terms are used interchangeably. Even in this story, Jesus bounces from describing this kingdom as the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Often when we think about it, our minds immediately go to the place that is to come, right? We think of the kingdom of heaven. That's largely where our priority is focused when we think about this particular statement. That realm that we will either go to or not go to someday. That that's the kingdom of heaven. It is a place beyond this life. A place in the far beyond. But is that, in fact, actually what Jesus is talking about? Is he talking about the kingdom of God? Or the kingdom, or like the kingdom now, or the kingdom to come? Well, the answer is yes. He's talking about both of them. But I think that primarily what Jesus is focusing on, because he does this throughout the Gospels, is he is talking about the kingdom as we experience it in the here and now. Jesus, you'll find, emphasizes far more than any talk about heaven or this place that you eventually get to, far more. He talks about the kingdom as it is present in the world today. You see, this thing called salvation or Jesus saving us, it's not, a, it's not about a pass into heaven as we've often thought about it, especially uh, within modern day evangelical Christianity. Like we've talked about the gospel as, hey, when you receive the gospel, when you accept the gospel, then you have had your past stamped so that you can now have the promise of heaven. Now that is certainly a byproduct of this whole thing. That is certainly the promise and what the Bible describes as the hope of the believer. The reality that we get to now live forever. But when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he is talking about an invitation into a kingdom, into a whole new way of living our lives that begins right now and lasts forever. What he is not talking about is essentially living your life largely the way you lived it before, but now with the assurance of heaven to boot. That is not Jesus's priority. He is talking about with the kingdom of God, how he wants to usher God's kingdom into our hearts and lives. He wants us to experience it. He wants us to embrace it. And he wants us to live it out in our everyday lives. Maybe you've heard, you know, at some point, some preacher talking about how people treat the gospel like some kind of fire insurance, right? Like it's some policy that we sign up for that we apply for, and when we have this insurance policy, then we have the promise of heaven, we have the hope of heaven, but then, hey, what does it matter how you live the rest of your life? But that's not how it works. Jesus is concerned about how we live today. Jesus is concerned about how we live out the principles of his kingdom right here, right now. And so God's kingdom is now and not yet. Uh, then it says... After Jesus speaks about the, how we receive this kingdom as a child, uh, Jesus says, or the, the, the gospel say, Behold, a man came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? 
So Jesus just got finished talking about how we must receive God's kingdom like a child. And then this man comes up to him and professes to him. He says, good teacher. In other words, um, you who are an expert in goodness, you are good. And certainly you can recognize goodness when you see it. Good teacher. What good thing must I do to have eternal life? Now, as we sort of discovered in the text, this man was a good man, right? Jesus rattles off the commandments that you're supposed to follow. He says, I have done all of these things from the time I was a child until this present day. I've done all of these things. I've kept God's commandments. He was a good man. And here he is asking Jesus, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? So again, we can see his mind even shifting to the priority of this life to come or this, this place that you either go to or do not go to somewhere down the road. And I can't help but wonder, is this man actually looking for instruction? Or rather, is he simply looking for affirmation? Is he actually asking Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or I have a tendency to think based on the rest of the conversation and what I can sort of surmise about him and how we might identify with him, that he's probably more likely looking for affirmation for the life that he was already living. Why? Because he was good. Because he was already good. Because he was already doing good things. So I don't think that this was necessarily instructive, but more looking for an opportunity where Jesus is talking about the kingdom for Jesus to hold this man up and say, here is an example of what it means to live the kind of life that God wants you to live. For all practical purposes, that man absolutely codified what it looked like to live a good, moral, righteous, upstanding life before God. But I think that he was more oriented to the prospect of this thing called eternal life while being perfectly, presently happy with how he was living his life right now. The kingdom that he had essentially built for himself. It was a good kingdom. And he says, what do I lack? And I've heard preachers preach on it. I've probably preached on it myself. Uh, from the angle of when he asked the question, what do I lack? Was there this nagging suspicion in his heart where, that he just couldn't get away from that, that maybe had him thinking he didn't quite have all that he needed to do done? And he was trying to actually find out from Jesus you know, what was that thing that was missing, right? You ever hear about the God-sized hole that's supposed to live in everybody's heart and only God can fill it? Anybody ever heard of that one, right? You know what we can do with a God-sized hole in our hearts? You know what we can do with that empty feeling that we have when we are not pursuing a relationship with God, when we are living our own lives? We can do all kinds of things. The reality is we can really quiet and we can temper that desire that we are supposed to have, that yearning that we're supposed to have for God, we can, we can quiet it right down. We can practically shut it up. You don't believe me? Buy a boat. Take up a hobby. 
Watch more television. Listen, there are lots of ways. There are plenty of distractions that we have available to us in this life that can actually keep us from having to deal with the pain or the angst of not ultimately living out our life's purpose, which is to have a relationship with God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. We can actually make that all but subside completely with all the distractions that we have available to us. And I'd rather think that this man probably was more coming from that place. That when he said to Jesus, what am I lacking? He wasn't necessarily actually looking for that thing that was missing in his life. But again, this affirmation where Jesus would put his stamp of approval, where Jesus, who is the expert in identifying what is good and what is not good, could clearly see just how good this man was. And certainly he could affirm his life. But God's kingdom is not received through affirmation. We all need to understand wherever we may find ourselves in life's journey, whether you're a person who doesn't know God, doesn't have a relationship with God, and is just trying to figure this life out, or you consider yourself to be the most righteous person in this room. Listen, every single one of us has to come to grips with the reality that the kingdom of God is not lived out through some affirmation of how we are living our lives right now. That's not how it comes. As much as we might be looking for somebody or some buddies around us to affirm our lives, to affirm our behaviors, to affirm what we have decided to, to, to do and to go after for ourselves, that's not how we live out the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is lived out entirely differently. Jesus begins with his instruction, with this corrective instruction by telling the man to keep the commandments. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. And Jesus says, keep the commandments. He turns back to Jesus and he says, which ones? And Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man replies again to him, all these things I have done. Keep the commandments. Now, I want to look for a moment at the commandments. It's probably been a while since you've looked at the Ten Commandments, right? I thought of maybe playing a game of having people come to the stage and try to, from memory, recite for us the Ten Commandments. But I'm guessing that might be a little more difficulty than we would think. So let's look at them. You want to look at them for a moment? Anybody need a refresher course, a little crash course on the Ten Commandments? Because it's interesting what Jesus does here. When he says, keep the commandments, and the man says, which ones? It's interesting how Jesus answers the question, which commandments must I follow, must I keep to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't actually go and rattle off all 10 of them. I don't know. Maybe he forgot about them too. I don't know. We break down the 10 commandments in two sections, generally speaking. Right? The first four have to do with our relationship with God. And then the next six have to do with our relationship with one another. Um, I, I tend to take the first four and break those down into two categories. Because I think the first three largely have to do with our relationship with God. And the fourth one, which is to keep the Sabbath and make it holy or keep it holy, is really a command for us, <laughs> for ourselves. I mean, through the teaching of Jesus and the way in which he seemed to kind of understand how the Sabbath day plays out, that is a commandment for me, for my benefit. And then the last six are, of course, how we relate to one another. Well, Jesus skips the first four. 
And then he proceeds with the next five. And then he takes the last one and replaces it with something else. Let's look at them. The commandments that we have or that we're supposed to keep, first of all, toward God, have no other gods before me. Remember that one? We all do that, right? We keep God first in our lives. 